Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. I'm Abraham Lee, the BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region. I am thrilled to be starting this new series with you on the profound Gospel of John. As you know, scholars believe that John's Gospel was written last about the four Gospels that we have. So John has probably read the other Gospels and wrote with the intention of not wanting to be redundant, but add more clarity and certainty to what the church body at the time needed to know as they grew into their knowledge of Jesus. So John starts from before time and space, uniquely so, from the book of Genesis, before all creation, relating us to Jesus as creator, from whom and for whom all things exist. So to help us understand where where this is getting us, uh, let me start off with the question, have you had a time in your youth when you were very, very curious about the family you were born into? Have you had times you were just uh, pouring into family photo albums and just stared into the faces and the old photographs and wondered how each person related to you, what kind of lives they must have had and how those people, those very people had some impact and influence on your life in real ways. We inherently know how important the story of our origins are to our understanding of who we are and where we're going in our lives. We make sense of our present moments by knowing our past and our future visions are shaped by rightly knowing where we came from and where we are today. We can't envision our future properly without knowing properly our past and much of that is linked to our understanding of our family. I had some students in fact who were orphans and after speaking with them, I discovered that one of the greatest struggles they had in their young adult years as they were trying to spread their wings and go out into the world is the sense that they had a huge hole in their knowledge of their past that they could not easily fill, even with their uh, newly adopted uh, parents. It was a large, dark, gaping hole to their sense of self and identity. So. Knowing God is like that. We are all orphans without knowing properly where we came from and how we fit in God's greater purposes. So without which we have a large black hole to work from. We can fill it with secular, materialistic, or evolutionary view of existence, that everything is a product of random chance events. Everything happened by accident, evolving through a selective process, and who knows how that process became the one to be working. But anyway, it's the selective biological process as described by such terms as uh, survival of the fittest. And um, where does that put us when we live into that ideology? Well, in a view of life that says life is ultimately about survival and only the fittest survive, you probably have to hustle and you have to outwit, outlast, outplay everybody else. And in a world that where winners take all and it's a fixed pie world out there and the first one wins, the strongest one wins and life is about hoarding more of that pie. But John's gospel tells us something entirely different from that. It calls all of us to remember something in the distant past we had forgotten because we failed to remember and to tell our children and let their children tell their children and that part of history gets lost in our memories, such that generations are now never being told that God made the world for a special kind of relationship with himself. 
He made us for himself so that by this relationship, we manifest and disclose the deeper attributes of God to the heavenly hosts of rational, cognizant creatures out there, both visible and invisible. So do you know what happens when an orphan child discovers his origins? First, there's a deep sense of understanding and closure. And the things that didn't make sense before about themselves start to make better sense. And they know their limitations and their strengths. There's a sense of deep peace about who they are. They understand why they were lost or given away and gifted to others. And they know what they need to do. They finally know what they need to do. And knowing what we need to do is a powerful knowledge. And that is what John aims for his readers in the early church. And rightly so, his message starts with the origin of all things, God himself. But before we go on to that, let's uh, just share with you um, what the outline for this passage is for this lesson. The doctrine is God the Son. The attribute of God that we learn about is his eternal nature. The big idea that we should take away is Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the aim and purpose of this passage is to teach us Jesus Christ is God, the only source of eternal life and light. We have three divisions for this passage. The first one is John 1, 1 through 5. John presents Christ as the Word and proclaims his deity. The principle that we take away is Jesus Christ is fully God and shines his light into this world's darkness. And the question for you to ask is, in what way has Jesus shined his light into the darkness in your life? The second division is John 1, 6 through 11. Christ is rejected by the majority. The majority of humanity refuses the light Jesus came to bring. The question is, to whom should you speak as a witness of Christ's light and life, if that's the case? And the third division is Christ is received by the minority, John 1, 12 to 18. And the principle here is that Jesus Christ gives life to all who believe him, who believe in him and his name. And so the application question for us to ponder is, how has truth about Jesus led you to experience God's grace? So as we move on, in the opening statement here, John 1, 1-5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In the opening statement John makes to us is a critical thesis statement for his entire message for, for the book, that Jesus, or Yeshua, is God. And that is why the Gospel of John stands as one of the most important books in the Bible to teach and lead into our understanding of Jesus. He is our Messiah, the covenantal anointed one. He is Yeshua or Jesus, the deliverer anointed by God. But he is also far more than that. He is God himself in human flesh. The Hebrew scriptures as early as Genesis uses the triplet refrain. So it's a structure of three sentences grouped together to emphasize a particularly important point. It does this not only for emphasis of an important point, but also for giving us more of that important truth that deserves uh, giving us more of that important truth that deserves deeper contemplation and understanding. So we see this triplet um, early on in Genesis in the creation of Adam and God's 
image in Genesis 1:27, where it says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you, so you can see that there are three lines there that relate to each other. Sounds similar at first glance, but they are very different also. So if you stop and read these seemingly identical statements, they, they, you might mistake them for being repetitive. But on closer inspection, a progressive logic leads us into more and more critical information about the relationships that relate us all to God that cannot be hurried through, cannot be dismissed. So here in John 1, John starts off his account in the very form that everybody in Israel was familiar with. Those very familiar words, in the beginning, which was the name given to their familiar book, the first book in the Torah, Genesis, which to them in Hebrew is Bereshit. The writers of the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are masterful in their connecting the Old Testament promises to the wonders of who Jesus is to us. John is telling us that Jesus is the word spoken from the mouth of God. So he existed before heaven and earth and before anything else was created. He is not a created one, but he pre-existed outside time and sp space. And Proverbs tell us that by his wisdom, he created all things in coherent order, structural unity, and with majesty. So God, the pre-existing Alpha and Omega, expressed himself by his word. And his word was with God, and the word was God. So even with the first verse, everyone should stop and take that statement in. Take it in. Reflect on it. Don't rush off too fast. It's truly one of the most profound theological statements ever made in human history. A friend recently pointed out that in the Greek, the last of the triplet lines doesn't say the word was God, but instead it actually says in the Greek that God was the word. God was the word. And logically, that makes definitively more clear that the word was not just another God among many other gods, but following the Greek sentence structure, that God is the word means there's only one God. And there's only, that word refers back to that one God. It's a statement of monotheism. Monotheistically, there is none other God than the one who spoke that word. And that word signifies. So each sentence continues to enrich our critical understanding of God. What follows are these statements. That he was God in the beginning. God's word, the Yeshua, was there from the beginning in unity with the Father. And this is before anything has been created, whether they be angels, principalities, powers, even the fall of the angels, the rebellious angels, or the council of heaven, all of it. He existed before all things. All things were made by him. He pre-existed. Without him, nothing could have been made that was made. So essentially, without him, none of this can exist. And in him was life. Remember the garden, God said, by sin, he told Adam, you shall surely die. Then death in all its forms, not just our physical death, but uh, the physical death that we're familiar with, most familiar with when someone said you're going to die. Uh, but death in all its ugly forms, whether that, that be in the form of violence, aggression, bloodshed, malice, hate, decay, and the dissolution that it brings, all its ugly forms seep in and progressively work at us to destroy us. 
So then imagine life in that way too. Every good thing that sustains us, makes us, helps us thrive, nourishes us, keeps us learning and growing and prospering, nurtures our well-being, enhances our capabilities, fortifies and secures our mental ability, stabilizes our spirits, all the things that make us develop and transform and live and keep ascending. Those are the things of life. And it is also the very eternal life that Jesus seeks to give us that only come from him. In Jesus is this life which we, he imparts to us. And it says that that life was the light of men. His life-giving attribute is our light. Without him, we do not have access to life and light. So this light, it reveals what life is like. It distinguishes what life can be without him and with him. So that in darkness, we know what it's like to have not the light. And in the light, we can distinguish and we can decipher, we can understand, we can see properly around us. But more than that, it feeds into our prosperity, our thriving, our well-being, so that we can live eternally with him. We depend on that light. Five, the last statement is that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So that's the first problem with the light, that once we are in the darkness, a blindness sets in. So it's so deeply that we cannot comprehend whether there is light shining or working to reach out to us at all. It is not intellectually or mentally understood. It cannot be perceived because we are in the dark. And for the word of God is spiritually discerned, it says, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So yes, light can keep shining, but the blindness that sets us in to that place where we refuse that light, shirk away from the light, prevent us from coming to the light. It's all by God's grace. So how do following the passages help you understand what John 1, 3 teaches about Jesus' relationship to God and to creation and to spiritual life and light? So going back, we go back to the central point that we should not take away from this first portion of the chapter so easily. The point is that Jesus is very God of very God. He's not part, he's not portion, he's not half of or conditional. He is 100% God. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 here accentuate this important point for question 4. So Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Powerful statement. And then in Hebrews, written for the Hebrews, the Jews who had their word, but now the apostles are making it more clear in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, to fully appreciate these statements, you have to remember nothing like this has ever been said of anyone else in human history. These are bombastic, over-the-top statements, if they were not true. And yet, these are the confessions made boldly by all the apostles of the early church and were widely taught as the kind of primer, essential facts, the alphabet of their understanding of the scriptures and God's covenant to us. And so... These are really important to hold on to. You know, if these were false, they couldn't possibly have endured these last 2,000 years. It would have been in the trash. But over thousands of years, people continue to copy and replicate these letters, these teachings, and pass them around thousands of times so that everybody understood and people's lives were changed by them. So let's look at one of the statements that's made, and it addresses the question in question 5. Explain what the words light and darkness mean in John 1, 4-5. Well, question 5 has us revisit the question of what is light. We modern people have lost sight of what the Bible says is the light. We think light is about just illumination. UC Berkeley, nearby us here, their model in its seal is the Latin word fiat lux, let there be light. A scriptural reference, kind of taken out of context, many organizations do co-opt biblical language of light in the context of learning, understanding, and seeing clearly. But they, in the age of information, they point to a knowledge and kind of learning that is apart from God, whereas the Bible is talking about something that is putting God at the center of everything, without whom we couldn't possibly understand. So here, uh, it reminds me of a secular professor who said this week, I don't like dogma and truth. <laughs> There's no such thing as truth. I like per the perspectival way of understanding. Dogma and truth are so rigid. I like the idea of continuously learning by perspectives and growing without someone telling me that there is a predetermined path. So this is the modernist mantra. They'll tell you, don't be so dogmatic about what you believe. Dogma keeps us in one place. It doesn't help us explore, they say. All of our experiences have their own truth. You have your truth, I have our, my truth. And as we share our truths, there's uh, all kinds of truths that we can find from our separate journeys. And that can sound really persuasive, right? <laughs> because we all do have different ways of exploring God's great, immense world and coming to uh, different ways of seeing it. Like, you know, the parable of the person, the team of people feeling parts of the elephant and, and one person feels the tail, another feels the ear. But collectively, we get to a, a more definitive grasp of what <laughs> the total animal but that's not what we're talking about here from Scripture. Because God is seeing the entire puzzle. He sees the elephant correctly, whereas we don't see the elephant at all, but it, in its parts. And of course, the problem with this also is that while many of us enjoy a beautiful hike through the grand outdoors, but never knowing where you're going, 
and why you're out there in the first place can be a problem. We go to a hike knowing that there's a destination. But if you're wandering and wandering and wandering around, enjoying yourself becomes the primary thing uh, without knowing that there is a destination to head to, that can lead to problems. The Bible's message is that humanity has a destiny. There is a destination for the believer. We are not meant to be wandering the hills forever because the hour of darkness does creep up on us. And Jesus says, the hour is coming when you will not have the light. I remember in one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, there's a famous line which sounds great when you hear it the first time. It says, get busy living or get busy dying. And of course, that's a valuable, valuable admonition for people uh, who are living by patterns and routines th thoughtlessly with no understanding as to why they're doing those things at all. So they just resign themselves to the conditions they find themselves in without making any needful changes. They just kind of wither away their life and their time without thoughtful introspection and thinking about ways that they can kind of progressively, progressively live bigger and fuller lives. But sitting is not what the Bible calls people to be doing. The Bible calls us to be passionate and active about our, our faith. Pursue the light of truth. You have a purpose, and you're not only given this purpose, you're called to uh, undertake that by seeking out the light, asking in prayer for the Holy Spirit so that you can do that properly. Remember also that light plays an important part in the Hebrew consciousness. So in the Exodus, God presented himself as light. He led the Israelites out of Egypt and was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of shade by day. His glory of kavod was a shining light which lit the holy of holies in the tabernacle during their entire sojourn in the wilderness. Imagine if you had that for you for 40 years. <laughs> but even for the Jews, even for the, not the Jews, the Hebrews, they, um, they became a kind of callous. It was so part of their life after a while, it didn't impress them anymore. You know, Psalms 119, 105, David says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We cannot take this for granted. John 8, 12 says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of life. What this means for the Christian is that we're people constantly making our way toward a definite destination, toward the light. We're pilgrims always moving forward on the journey. We're not wandering the hills aimlessly, admiring the roses, the daffodils. <laughs> we're making progress. We know where we're going. We know what we need to be doing. We don't wander aimlessly and we don't pretend that we have light within ourselves to guide the way that the truth is within us and that that truth originates with us. We acknowledge we are blind and we look to the true light who is Jesus himself. So what is the aim and life work that we should be about doing? Question 6a tells us that it's similar to what John the Baptist was doing. You know, there was a man named Jack London who's famous in, in the Bay Area. He's a writer. 
Many of us read his works in high school and middle school. He died in 1916, and he was 40 years old at the time. Um, shortly before meeting uh, his death, Jack wrote, London wrote these words. He said, I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in me, magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Up to a certain point, it is necessary for a man to live his life in the world in which he finds himself and to make the best of it. But beyond that point, he must create a world of his own. And the greatest thing about life is that it is always giving us the opportunity to create something new. It is never too late to start over, to make a fresh beginning, and to blaze a new trail. So this was the hopeful optimism of the turn of the century. And Jack London was a great admirer of the outdoors. And when you're outdoors and you're writing and you're a creative person like Jack London was, um, there is an optimism there, even though you may be beset by disease and, and by limitations. Um, and when people read this, you know, they can resonate, their hearts resonate with that, to live their best life. God gave us a wonderful and beautiful world. So many possibilities, so many ways that we can press into that world using our gifts and talents. But they were not to be lived in isolation apart from God. What we misunderstand is that the created things can exist without the uncreated God. That the created things can find their own ultimate sense of being and purpose so that we can be so invested in ourselves and we find our own way and we establish and we create our own sense of meaning and purpose. We are not the ultimate things. We are created things and we lose sight of the creator who is beckoning us to learn about him from those created things that we are so often captivated by. All creation is captivating because they tell of one we should rightly be captivated by, God himself. All creation tells of his glory and reveals God, Romans chapter 1 tells us. Therefore, all of creation is a kind of lesson in theology. We assume our life, the world, morality, our work, our family lives, all have purpose only because there is a God who has put purpose and meaning into those things. We don't invent and construct meaning into those things ourselves. There is a big trend right now to say all of society, all of life that we know it is a constructed social construction. But we must know from the scriptures that God has instituted those things for our good. Many of those things, now I don't deride social construction when, you know, there are things that are socially constructed, but there are more essential things at play here by the way in which God has created our bodies our intellect, our language, the way we perceive and make our way in the world, the way we experience the enjoyment of the world around us, all of those things point to God himself. And that is what the scripture is telling us. That is what John the Baptist never ceased to do in his aim and life work. He is pointing to Jesus, of whom he has the highest respect. And who he worships. Remember that John was a child of a priest, Zechariah. 
Zechariah was a priest in the life of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was also from the line of Aaron. Luke chapter 1 tells us. Zechariah and Elizabeth were quite old in years. Verse 7 says that they were both well along in years. But when the angel appeared to Zechariah, he tells them that his prayer has been answered and that Elizabeth, Elizabeth his wife, would bear a son. Can imagine that. That's either really delayed answer to prayer or perhaps Zechariah never failed to have faith that he would one day have a son who would bear and carry on that priesthood role of leading people to worship, proper worship before God. So remember from this example that God's people are always praying like Zechariah into the purposes of God in the world. They're praying and speaking about the things that God cares about, which takes our mind off of the things that we care about. Our little world into our ego dramas that we play into the away from us and into the global affairs of God. Our prayers takes us into the things that God cares about. It gets us into a radically different mindset and with a radically different set of priorities. If we're having problems in our lives, it's very likely because our priorities are not what God cares about. It's likely we are not even praying to know what God cares about. And if you're not used to praying, or it's still a very awkward thing for you, it's like you know when you meet a stranger in a room and you haven't a clue what to say, and both of you are kind of uncomfortable, and you don't know how to make chit-chat, that's like the person who doesn't know how to pray with God. If a friend, however, comes to you, you know how immediately to strike up a conversation and right away talk about shared interests. But if prayers are not flowing, God is probably more like that awkward stranger in the room than like the friend you can't get wait to get some time with. Our spiritual lives don't lie. The reality of our spiritual condition tells us what we are missing. The reality of our spiritual condition tells us where we are in our relationship with God. So these two elderly believers, elderly believers, Zechariah and Elizabeth, believe God, never give up believing, never cease to be working for the things of God. And when John the Baptist, their son, was born, Zechariah gave prophetic voice to what his son will do. In Luke 1, 76, he says, You, my child, would be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace, his peace. So how would you describe the primary purpose and focus of a life lived for God? What is your orientation is the best question to ask. I mean, we have, we're living in an age where people are, have kind of this, uh, this description of their lives defined by their orientation, whether it's a sexual orientation or some racial orientation or some other thing. They're, they're very honed up in, and into their thinking that these orientations define them. But for the believer, our orientation should be imbued with the spiritual calling of God and an identity founded in God. This is probably one of the most important questions you can be asking yourself. 
through the study because it will determine the rest of your life. Who am I? What am I? What do I need to be doing? It all arises out of the orientation. Later on in the question uh, regarding verse 13, and there's another important point for us to focus on. It says that the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor husband's will, but born of God. And that last verse is quite important here. I just want to make a final point. Born not of natural descent. Look at the phrase also of, of human, not of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Have you wondered why Jesus was born a virgin? Why was Jesus born a virgin birth? Yes, there is a sense that the element of holiness is there in Jesus' conception. But we also get something different here in these verses. We get a hint here in the verse that speaks of the kingdom that Jesus ushers in. And that it's intrinsically not born of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So it's very interesting here that Jesus' very birth is completely mediated by God himself. Not of a husband's decision or will, not of human decision, completely uh, mediated by God. Although they're completely also of human bloodlines from Joseph and Mary. So the characteristic of those who are born of God is a spiritual rebirth. And it's just as Jesus told Nicodemus, who thought he had to go into his mother's womb a second time. John is telling us this birth is spiritual, kind of born of God, born, being born of God by the Spirit of God when we receive Christ as our Savior. And then in question 12 there is another question that asks um, what G john is saying about jesus and what each of the phrases mean in verse 14 where it says the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth one of the key distinguishing characteristics of christianity is its leader jesus he's the only one in human history who claimed to be eternal and to be god and to be taken very seriously by everyone who knew him as God. Other religious leaders, well, they all claimed to be a prophet or some good teacher, but they were they were humans. <laughs> and they didn't, you know, confuse people by saying that they were anything more than that. Um, other people, after they died, uh, tried to make them to be more than that, but they all died. You, you couldn't go beyond that fact. But Jesus rose from the dead, and he continues to live. And there is nothing like that that ever, ever occurred again or before. Some who say that they are Messiah have never shown any messianic signs or promises or have done the things that Jesus did. And so these statements by John and his disciples are fantastic statements. And you should know that if they were not true and believed to be true, these writings would not have survived antiquity. They would have been disparaged. They would have been burned. They would not have been copied, rewritten hundreds and thousands of times to be studied by thousands of early church believers throughout the known world and taken to be true. People live by these texts. 
Who would have passed on such balderdash on highly expensive leather parchment paper? And then they also used a special kind of metallic ink for such message to make them last. Why would people do such a thing if these statements were not true? In verse 14, John explicitly says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen, I mean, we, we've experienced this person. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So why is this critically important? Because Jesus is the only one who can tell us anything about God the Father, because Jesus is the heart of the Father. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Anytime the Bible uses the phrase being at the side of or being at the right hand, it is a metaphorical expression of highest authority and efficacy of being so intimately, intimately associate with the power to execute at all levels because they have been given the authority, they have been given the charge to do. They are acting with um, great efficacy here. So John's testimony starts here. Notice how passionate and confident John's descriptions are of Jesus. They're not full of, you know, I guess, and my memory may serve me, but I'm not so sure. They're not timid like that, nor hesitating. They don't present inconclusions or several lines of thought about who Jesus could have been or they're guessing. No, these are very confident words. He, like all the apostles, are singularly unified in their understanding of the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And so should be the church in modern times. The followers should be no less confident and certain of the testimony that we should bear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the confidence of the apostles and all who knew you. Jesus, when you lived on earth, the incarnation of God to us, We thank you, Lord, for the charge you've given us to share the word that Emmanuel, God, is with us and that he has delivered us and made a way for us through his perfect atonement and buying us back into the kingdom of his son. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you and we glory in the proclamation of worship and praise in the book of John that we study together. And we pray that you continue to um, unleash and unfold for us and fill up the gaps in our understanding that we may rejoice with you for who you are to us, our God and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.